Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode number 30 with your hosts, Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. And we're joined today by our guest, Bruce Persley. Thank you so much for having us here today. We're over at the Mount Vernon Companies. It's plural, right? It's actually singular. Okay. You guys f- focus mostly on apartment and rental type product? Yeah. I mean, our primary focus is, is multifamily. and We've been doing it for about 30 years. And your background was in advertising, right? I have a very unusual background for this business. I worked on national consumer accounts like uh, Ked Sneakers, A&W Root Beer, and Converse Athletic Shoes, and Parker Brothers Games. And that is the discipline that I draw on primarily for, for what we do. I don't know a whole lot of people who have come from the advertising background in this business, but it influences uh, virtually every decision we make. Awesome. Tell us about Sunkiss. Yeah, we've been dying. (laughs) (laughs) This is a pretty funny story. I was a summer intern at what was then the largest ad agency in Boston, has now morphed into Arnold Worldwide, which is also a large company. I was working in the mailroom. I wanted to uh, be an account executive. They said, well, let's give you this job first when I was uh, 20 years old. And the exchange was they would let me sit into meetings. And one of our clients was A&W Root Beer. And they had a client meeting to come up with new products. And I was able to sit in the meeting. And I came in with a design for sun-kissed orange soda. And they all looked at each other and said, this is pretty cool. We went and had it tested and it scored the highest consumer preference test ever (laughs) by the testing service. So we brought it to United Brands that owned A&W. United Brands said, we love the idea, but we also own the Chiquita banana label. We may get into the citrus business someday. So they didn't do it. The growers, the Sunkiss Growers Association, then went to General Cinema, brought them the idea. General Cinema said, great, let's do it. The thing was a grand slam home run. <laughs> and uh, I didn't get any uh, compensation, but I did get a job. No royalty. You got out of the, <laughs> yeah. the mailroom. Yeah, yeah. it, it was my ticket out of the mailroom. Seems like that's how a lot of careers started was the mailroom. It does. You're, there's, Cut your teeth there. Yeah, there's no chance for success in life if you didn't start in the mailroom. How did you go from advertising to real estate? How, how was that transition? And when did that happen? Uh, it happened a long time ago. It was uh, 30-odd years ago. I loved the ad business, but I did realize that there was a point where it would not be financially self-sufficient. I also like the architecture and, and things that are visual. Our office was at One Beacon Street. I bought a little condo on uh, the top of Myrtle Street for $22,000. I would sneak out at lunch and I would work on it physically. And I'd come back at lunch and they'd say, why is there paint all over your hands? And I, I bought this thing and I fixed it up and I sold it. And I doubled the value of it, uh, which sounds like a lot of money, except it was only $22,000. <laughs> and I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And I was kind of outperforming the market. And I said, geez, you know, this, there may be a marriage here between consumer marketing and maximizing the value of real estate. So I um, 
had an aha moment. I said, I need to write a book on this. So I wrote a book called Packaging Your Home for Profit. And uh, that came a little later, but it was the merger of uh, consumer marketing theory with how to increase the value of your home, which I viewed as the ultimate consumer product. So Hmm. is it still on Amazon? It is, but probably hard to find. It's out of print. I am planning an updated version because I wrote it a long time ago. Um, I did leave the ad agency business, went to work for Leggett McCall, which was at the time the dominant commercial player. And um, I was both director of marketing for them and then a, a, a commercial broker. But I realized that multifamily was what I loved. I tried to convince them. And at the time, multifamily wasn't viewed institutionally. They thought, you know, to be a real man, you got to have a warehouse, you got to have a high rise, you can't have a, you know, and it turns out multifamily has been the stellar performer and commercial swings wildly. It's, its values go up and down and, and uh, I chose the right sector. I'm not sure they did, but I'm still close with the principals. <laughs> they were wonderful people. Yeah, I'll bet they regret not jumping into that multifamily stuff with <laughs> you then. That's very possible. Maybe, although they've also done very well, I'm sure. You were doing the individual condos, then you got into some multifamilies, assuming some duplexes, triplexes. What was the foray after that? How did you make the next jump up, as you as we say? I mean, it, it was organic. It was it was literally going from one to two to four. And it, it, uh, it you know, the ownership, pattern was geometric and it starts to elevate very quickly. And before you know it, I had 50. And then then the best thing that ever happened uh, was the real estate crash at the end of the 90s. And I had seen it coming. I sold everything. I preserved my credit. I so you had w- no holdings at that point. I had no holdings and I had a absolutely stellar credit record. I went to Citizens Bank and Larry Fish, who was the chairman of the time, said, I, I highly doubt we can lend to you because we don't lend any money to any individual who owes one penny to one bank or has, you know, renegotiated or shortchanged them. I said, well, uh, Mr. Fish, I'm your man. And he became my lender. And so it was very difficult to get money at that time. Prices had absolutely collapsed. This was not a real estate recession. This was a real estate depression. And I started buying buildings in the back bay for $80, $85 a foot, some of which we still have. And it was an incredible opportunity. And I tried to raise money. People felt it was too risky. Uh, It was a time where real estate was really a dirty word. I said, well, I've got to do the best I can myself. And that that was the launching pad. Would you say the opportunity in the early 90s was better or worse than in the 07, 08 time period? You know, the quote-unquote Great Depression. Oh, oh, much. It was much better. You know, we were very well positioned in 2007, for example. We also felt a seismic event was coming. But as I say to people, it was the most disappointing recession I've ever been through because prices here did not really go down much. The ownership uh, structure was uh, very well capitalized. Boston lived off the backbone of our economy, which was uh, medical, education, 
defense technology, things that aren't very susceptible. And um, we rode out the recession better than probably any place in the country. For me, I was hoping it was going to be, you know, the 90s all over again, and it wasn't. So, uh, you know, we really haven't, you know, the early, uh, the dot-com crash in, in, in 2001 presented, you know, some opportunities, but we've never seen anything like what had happened in the, in the, in the 90s. Do you foresee anything like that ever happening here again? How about more in the immediate term? Do you yeah. have any, any senses? Crystal kind of, ball. Anything we, coming back? We sold everything yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> sell, sell, sell. Uh, I don't see it. I, I think that if something really disastrous happened here, it would mean it's so much worse everywhere else that uh, it would be Armageddon. And so for this market, uh, given, given the employment, the quality of the employment, given the strength of the institutions. You know, there, there are some subtle things happening that people don't see. Small private colleges are dropping like flies. That, that is going to create some unemployment. What was we, it in, in, in Brookline? I think it was an all-women's college. Anyway, they, they sold their land. Well, Mount, Mount Ida yes. and Newbury Junior College. This is happening with regularity. And it's not terribly well publicized, but, you know, we still, despite all the production of new housing, our, our Pricing is high here. Uh, our cost structure is high. But the positioning of this city in the world economy has never been better. The world is coming to us because we have MIT, which is the driver. You know, Harvard is lovely to have on your resume. MIT is the driver. And you look at the biotech and life science uh, business. We are at a point now with enormous computing power and, and various forms of medical technology that are allowing us to cure diseases that we couldn't have done five years ago. Uh, you're looking at Biogen may have a pill for Alzheimer's, which is, I mean, it would be a blockbuster uh, on top of blockbusters. And, and Vertex with cystic fibrosis and what Mass General is doing in research uh, this is the place to be, and I think it will feed Boston for a long time. So your focus, obviously, you said multifamily, uh, residential. Are you building these larger buildings to hold for the long term? Because, uh, you know, a lot of larger developers, their kind of play is, you know, build it, lease it up, stabilize it hold it for five to 10 years, then sell it, then move on and kind of roll in the next one. What, what's your kind of long-term strategy? Typically, we are long-term holders. Uh, long-term meaning they will be my children's properties. We did sell the three core buildings in the Alston Green District. I was not, I was a reluctant seller, but the price was so high at the time. And I think the price probably still holds up pretty well. And we use that success to, to, to build more, but creating new real estate around here is very difficult. It is on the Olympic level of difficulty. It's about a 9.9. By the time you've done it and, and the amount of brain damage, selling it is not uh, really worth it from our standpoint. We do not have funds. We are not investing other people's money. We don't have internal rate of return pressures where we have to sell it and, uh, and we're long-term believers. So 
we have the, we do it the old-fashioned way. We put up our own risk capital. We sign on loans personally. If a deal blows up, I'm probably not going to be on the show anymore because you really don't want to talk to me. So we are absolute believers in the future. I will say this. It is also getting more expensive to develop. Uh, you're going to see possibly the affordability requirements going up. Um, every year, there's more and more that the, that the neighborhood wants. And there could come a point in the not-too-distant future where it is economically infeasible to build these buildings. So we're, we're doing what we can while it works. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it will work forever. Do you find it difficult when you're competing for acquisitions Folks who are looking at it as a condominium conversion play, a quick sale, uh, whereas your outlook is typically a buy and hold apartment investment, especially in, in the more urban places like Boston. You know, it used to be uh, during the condo boom that that was the case, that the highest and best use uh, was a condominium. Now, it really isn't. The market rewards the apartment developer. The exits are very high. The cap rates are very low. Interest rates are lower on apartment buildings. The banks are much more comfortable with apartments. And, you know, we don't have that much condominium development going on around here. We have a number of luxury buildings uh, downtown. There's Pier 4 and there's... Millennium Tower. Uh, Millennium. And, you know, there are a handful of them, but they used to be everywhere. And the reason they're not is the lenders were so badly burnt. For those lenders that are still in their jobs, they realize that, um, you know, it wasn't that long ago. And you look at other markets, you know, Miami, you could actually chart and you can tell when Miami will blow up. And it went through the worst condominium overbuilding in America the condominium production stopped. All of a sudden, it ramped up. And guess what? It's uh, downtown Miami has a glut and prices are dropping like a rock. New York City has too many condos. I don't think we are. Uh, we have too many of them. And I think there's some barriers to entry. So the answer is no, we are not. We do not see a lot of competition for condos. So you did mention that going back to a comment you made earlier about how expensive it is to build in the city and how at some point it may not be feasible to build these types of buildings. At that point, do you start exploring areas outside of the metro Boston area? Or, you know, is that kind of the the next kind of iteration of where these buildings will be seen and built? Yeah, the answer is yes. The yields are so low. And it's funny, if you sit in front of a neighborhood group who's objecting to your project or wants money for this and money for that, they just will not believe when you say, I cannot afford this. Go, what do you mean you can't afford it? You, 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 you literally can't afford it. And as much as the developer can have a great relationship with neighborhoods, I think we have great relationships. We've, we've, we, we do what we say and we say what we do when we build buildings that are um, additive to neighborhoods. We don't detract from them. But they don't believe you. And uh, I was thinking about this last night. My next neighborhood meeting for my next deal, I'm going to go in with the pro forma and I'm going to hand it out. And, uh, you know, wow. and I say, you want transparency? Here it is. And so they will see. But I do think that to get yield, 
you have to go out. And, and Boston is, the cost of construction here is, if not the highest in the country, it is among the highest uh, in the country. Our land costs keep going up and uh, there's a lot of supply coming and it could start to put downward pressure on rents or certainly uh, not give landlords pricing power where they can push rents. I, I, there's, a, there's a very large pipeline that's coming. Are there any markets that you're bullish on outside of the city? I can't tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Portland, Maine. <laughs> I, I will tell you that after my next interview and in retrospectively what we did. Sure. But uh, I'm only half kidding. We are looking elsewhere. And um, what is the next frontier? For us, Alston was the last frontier. And we started, we've acquired a fair amount of development sites here when people looked cross-eyed at Alston, which I never understood. I said, geographically, we're part of the Harvard campus. Uh, now it's a part of the growing Harvard campus. We have direct access to Star Drive. We have direct access to Soldiers Field Road, direct access to Watertown, direct access to Chestnut Hill and Commonwealth Avenue. The geographic metrics here were so overwhelming and it hadn't been touched for decades. So we said, there's no place like this. And so what we did is we quietly assembled pieces of land, which we are now reaping the rewards for. But so we, we need to find the next Alston. I doubt it will be in Boston proper. Yeah, we had the pleasure of having um, PT and uh, Michael from uh, Charles Gate Real Estate uh, with us last week. And they're brokers who've done a number of buildings, condominium stuff in, uh, in Alston and in Brighton, the Aberdeen, the Sayreville, and they're fetching north of $950 a square foot. I'm sure something that, how, how, do, you, how do you see that? Is that something that's no surprise to you? Or Well, it, it, it is a surprise. I mean, that's what the Back Bay used to go for not that long ago. And that's, you know, quote, affordable housing. <laughs> so, you know, there will maybe come a point where condominium development in Alston uh, may be the only the only way to go. But if you were to ask me, would you get $900 a foot in Alston when we did the Alston Green District, I would have said, you're, you know, you're, 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 you're out of your mind. And so it is, it, it's extraordinary. I do think there's a lack of condo supply and people want to, people do want to own. And, uh, you know, this is right now the, the cheapest way to do it. It's, as uncheap as it is. How much are your build costs currently? Are you, you, you know, if 300 a foot, 500 a foot? Around $300 a foot. And, and then you put in land costs and then you put carry and then you put architectural and other soft costs. And, and then you have, you know, 13.5% affordable. And then you have the givebacks to the neighborhoods. And so building units below, you know, $425,000 a unit or so uh, all in is, is very, very difficult. And, and, you know, people are wondering, well, you know, how do we create more affordable housing? And I don't know, find affordable construction, find, find cheap bricks. I, I don't know. I mean, there, and, and we are building at the entry level part of the market. So it's not like, you know, we, we, we can't take out the gold leaf in the, uh, in, in the, in the, in the common bathrooms. I mean, we, we're, we're already there. How about your thoughts on modular? You mentioned cheaper construction, and that's the first thing that kind of popped into my mind. Obviously, it's got some, you know, stigmas maybe from its first iterations, but 
I've seen some larger buildings, especially kind of outside of the core of Boston, go up that way. You know, modular to this point has been very disappointing. You have restrictions uh, about hallway widths and, and you can tell a building is modular. It does take less time to build, but it takes more time to plan because you cannot make adjustments in the field. You got what you got. And so you better make damn sure that you didn't screw it up. And so there's been uh, some modular construction. It's much more suited towards single-family houses. There is a project called Track 75 that's modular, and you can kind of I mean, some of the knocks on the modular, too, is when you have a height restriction, your floor-to-floors, your floor-to-ceilings suffer as a result of having that structure at the ceiling, then and again a structure that's on the right. floor. You, when you you, you're you're doubling it together. up. Yeah, that's and a challenge. The uh, but you know I have heard that there are changes mm-hmm. that are there's new technology. I will say one thing: this is a this is a prediction. It is not going to happen overnight. But the way that we are going to revolutionize the construction of all housing, including multi-eventually, and the way we're going to get costs down is 3D printing. And you are going to be able to 3D print a house in 24 hours, that being the shell of the house, and you will be able to to apply this technology toward multifamily eventually. It's being, there's, the Chinese are uh, working on developing it. Uh, There's a, a a very large company in Italy. And that will be the most revolutionary new event in housing production because there haven't been many. And it could be a total game changer when it happens. Sure, the unions will love that and all the other uh, tradesmen in, that are non-union as well. Look, any uh, all robotics uh, are going to change our lives and it will and, and could have very dire effects on employment and employment opportunities. And that would be a big one. You would put a lot of people out of work, but you also may put a lot of people into homes that they can afford. Absolutely. Yeah. Affordability is huge. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. I have some opinions on that. I, I know I've shared some with you guys off the air, but I think it all comes down to the seller. I mean, there's obviously some deals where you can get the land free and it doesn't still make sense on paper. And then there's other ones where you know, all we do is drop the prices on the acquisition side and things can still operate. I think if you, I 100% agree about the 3D printing as being the future, but I would say that I think that will just drive up acquisition to a degree, but obviously. It, it, it will, it could add tremendously to land land values. And yeah. so you're right, it may all come out in the wash. And this isn't going to happen tomorrow. Mm. No. But, you know, we, we keep seeing technology that, you know, isn't going to happen tomorrow and it happens two weeks from tomorrow. So, yeah. so the pace of change is happening very quickly. And that would, uh, that would be an extraordinary change to, to how this business is run. Oh, yeah. Oh, I think in terms of the community, you mentioned, you know, being good partners there. If you can put a house up in 24 hours, I think they'd, I think they'd put up with the site work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can we talk a little bit about underwriting deals? And since you're funding everything yourself, um, you have no outside investors. Obviously, that helps. What are the typical returns you're looking for on a project? How are you typically going out and underwriting a deal? You know, I've looked at your, you know, some of the properties you've owned, and it kind of 
the, it ranges from you know just a few units to hundreds of units. So obviously the underwriting between those are, are much different, you know. But in general, can you kind of touch on that at a high level? Yes, I mean you see small units because we started out small. We've kept the properties, but our time is now best spent on larger units and larger buildings because um, it's the same amount of time. The underwriting is that you you, you touch on a very interesting kind of dilemma in this business. The exit value of a building today far exceeds its true economic value. The bank views the deal for its economic value. What is the return on the asset? Can it cover the debt cost plus vacancy plus reserves and so forth? It's a very simple formula. When you go to sell that building, it can be worth 30% more than the bank says it's worth. So economics have been decoupled with market value. I have to build a building based on the economics. And so the bank wants to see a certain coverage ratio and they will lend, you know, 75% of of value or or 70% of value. So I have to play by, by that rule. Because we don't resell the buildings and we don't yield that premium that an investor who's not driven by economics, i.e. a Chinese investor who wants to get his money out of China, they'll pay a higher premium for it. So I am penalized because my land cost is higher because it's ultimately geared toward the person who is the merchant builder who builds it and sells. So it does make it more and more difficult for those poor souls like me who are just building a building because it's supposed to generate a a yield. So that's why it's getting more and more difficult for the long-term holder. I have to follow the guidelines of the bank. And if the deal works on a cash flow basis, they'll lend me the money. If the deal doesn't work on a cash flow basis, they won't. If I go to the bank and say, I know the deal loses money, but I can sell it to to an investor from Germany for twice as much, they say, well, that, you know, that's great, except you know, we're talking about the here and now. And uh, the business has become, uh, I, I don't know, well, <laughs> why would I say, there are a lot of business, I was going to say, I don't know many businesses that, that do this, but now that I think about it, you know, look at WeWorks, look at Lyft, look at, uh, look at Uber. These companies, not only do they, they do not make money, they lose a fortune and they, up till now, have had crazy valuations. Real estate is not quite so crazy, but it's this, it's almost the same dynamic. Those forces that are driving the um, the exit value to exceed the economic value scare me some. I mean, I just wonder if that's sustainable in our world where we're selling condos. We sometimes see it from Chinese buyers or the the foreign buyer unicorn, um, and and when those forces dry up, or those. Economic winds change. Um, I, I wonder if there's been a shift afoot. Yeah, but you people, there's been there have been there are companies that have been doing that for the last thirty plus years. That's kind of their mo. No, no, I, I I don't think so. I think that this this has been more the last ten years. But you look at 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 the Millennium condominium uh, building downtown. I think almost half of them were sold to Chinese investors. The building is essentially an apartment building because all those investors uh, turn around and rent out to, to people. If you extracted that component of this market, if China had a prohibition of taking money 
all your money out of China. And by the way, they have restricted it. What would happen? I mean, uh, so you raise really one of the risks of this market is there are substantial components to this market that are driven by non-economic decisions. The good news is that the United States is the world's safe haven. It continues to be so. And people in these cases are less concerned about the return on their money than the return of their money. If your money is going to be nationalized, you don't care about a 3% return, a 5% return, a 6% return. You don't want to lose your money. And that's why money keeps pouring into this country because whatever your politics are, you know, if we have political instability, it isn't forever. These countries may have political instability or, you know, or, or total government control forever. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was hoping we could talk a little bit about hotels too. I had the pleasure of walking through the Revolution Hotel on Clarendon. You guys did a beautiful job there. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of that hotel? when you acquired that and sort of your vision for it and how it's doing? This is uh, quite a story. We bought this hotel. It was a glorified youth hostel, very small rooms, great bones in the common areas, uh, very good location. And we said, there's got to be a higher use for this. And so my kind of marketing switch went on. And I said, there's an opportunity here to do something extremely cool. And I have always been fascinated by why is it that Boston creates so many world-changing ideas and concepts and products and innovations and you know, medical breakthroughs uh, than any other place in the world. There, there's no place that has this concentration of it. So I said, let's showcase that in this hotel. And the concept of the hotel is that the American Revolution did not stop in 1776. It was just getting warmed up. And throughout the hotel, we, in a very sophisticated way, not a hard rock cafe way or even a moxie way where, you, where you've got these things I mean, that they hit you over the head with a two by four. <laughs> and we showcase in the hotel, I think we have about 200 innovations that give you the sense that something special is going on here. And it uh, gave me a chance to hire very cool graphic designers, and sculptors. And, and the trick to this hotel was that there were shared bathrooms. And so we, uh, I typically don't have a whole lot of difficulty getting loans. We had 30 banks say, you have finally come up with an idea that we think is is just <laughs> uh, you know ridiculous. I, and the bank, the bankers themselves were saying, uh, particularly, I, I don't want to be sexist, but the women say, I'm not staying in a shared bathroom. <laughs> and I say, well, you're not my customer. And uh, so what we did is we took a third of the bathrooms, a third of the rooms, put in bathrooms at great expense, uh, the, and we created these cool bathrooms for the rest of the uh, the of the rooms. And what happened was really interesting. Not only were the shared bathrooms not a problem, but the people who rented the hotel rooms with bathrooms are now using the bathrooms that are common. 
<laughs> and the reason being is they're like going to a spa or a high-end health club or, or you know, they're, they're beautiful. You walk into this open area. It's not like a, your high school shower or in a prison. It's not like some big, you know, curtain and you're yeah. stepping into <laughs> the dorms. This, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got to watch your backside. Um, there, you walk into this little suite and there's a, you know, beautiful shower and, 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 you know, there's a, you know, a, a sink and a toilet and, and, and you close the door and you're in your own little space. We have rooms in this hotel that, that can fit four people. Well, four women want to get ready at once and you have one bathroom. It doesn't work so well. So one of them uses the one in the room, three of them use the ones down the hall. And we have a little notification in the room that tells you when the room is going to be open. We have a notification of our cleaning people when they go into these bath when someone comes out of the bathroom, it is it is cleaned within five minutes. So you're not walking into a wet shower, which kind of can be a little disconcerting. And Consequently, our biggest liability was eliminated. People absolutely love the the vibe. They can tell this is a one-off hotel. This is not a, a, a big corporation trying to be cool. It never works. And when you walk into a Moxie, that is the product of a bunch of Wharton MBAs sitting around a table saying, let's do something cool. It doesn't work. I really wanted to ask you about that, why you guys seem to go boutique and independent on your hotels as opposed to hanging a banner, Marriott, Moxie, but it sounds like you're getting to some of that. There were too many unusual aspects of this hotel, particularly shared bathrooms. They wouldn't have touched it. And people want craft beer. People want craft olive oil. They have craft uh, mayonnaise and ketchup they want people want genuine experiences and you know when Budweiser comes out with a craft beer and the, the Budweiser name is in tiny little type in the back and it's called you know waterfall beer and people realize it's not they don't want it and uh, so you can smell out something that isn't real and our our common areas are so cool and the touches we we bought the oldest tree in Boston when it fell down or it had to be cut down on Marlboro Street. We had it, we had it planed, aged. We made our bar out of it. And we correlated major innovations and events in Boston with the with the lines on the tree in this on the bar. And there are there are hundreds of touches like this. And how do you overcome the um, booking challenge whereby folks go on to Kayak or Marriott Hilton have this massive, they show up first on the Google page. Your hotel's full. It's gotten incredible reviews. Sorry, how many rooms? We have, it's a, an interesting story. We have a, a, an affordable component, but that's going to be, that's going to be reduced substantially. So when we're down to close to 200 rooms and our occupancy rate is 94.5%. The city That's average incredible. is 80. And our reviews are terrific. And Condé Nast Traveler ranked our hotel uh, number one in Boston. And uh, so the people, I guarantee you, at um, 15 Beacon and, and, and the Envoy and, and the uh, Mandarin were going, what the heck? Uh-huh. A, a, you know, a place that is this price point is number one and it's a it's a it's a reader's poll you can't influence it so um we are waiting for our restaurant to open and that so that's without a restaurant that's gonna be opening in about two weeks it's a it's a 
by the people who did the Beehive in the South End. Oh, nice. It's going to be super cool. We are working on getting a roof deck permitted, which will be the coolest roof deck in the back bay in the South End, bar none. So we're not even, we don't, we haven't even fired the big canyons yet. And, uh, (laughs) But this hotel has been a labor of love, and I'm actually writing a companion book that is going to tell the story of Boston's role in changing the world. And it's just, it's, it's absolutely incredible. I'm going to give you one quick piece of trivia. Please. I went to two TV sportscasters, and I said, what sports were invented in Boston? None of them can, can answer it. And I say, I use Boston loosely. So we have... We invented basketball, which is in Springfield. Most people know that. Volleyball. Most people don't know that. Baseball. People think it was at Abner Doubleday in New York. No, it was here. Organized football. The first organized football league was on the common. And no surprise, Candleton Bowling. Virtually every major sport in America came from here. We produced more automobiles. Uh, excuse me, we had more automobile manufacturers in greater Boston in the 1900s than Detroit. And it goes on and on. So so we have an unbelievable story to tell. We're passionate about it. And I think it shows. It's almost the marriage between an interior design crew and an historian crew. I mean, you really get that level of detail. Do you have an historian on, on payroll? Um, we don't, uh, you're talking to him, uh, but it, it, it definitely, this was curated and, uh, that's probably the best yeah. way to describe it. And that's, that's what people want. The, you know, that's what that's, they want the experience. They want to say, you know, you can't, you can't go to a hotel like this anywhere else in the world. There, it is one of one there. The, the, this is not cookie cutter at all. Before we get off hotels, my wife wanted me to ask. She said, we stay at hotels in Manhattan all the time, and hotels in New York City are less expensive than Boston. Why is that so? Well, you know, supply and demand, I suppose. I mean, we, our barriers to, ent- to entry are higher. We, uh, Manhattan has built a ton of hotels, and they build them very, very tall. And, uh, you know, Boston is an extraordinary tourist donation, uh, destination, rather. And, and we, you know, we have a lot of convention events here. We, uh, I think last week there was a liver convention. I fortunately didn't go. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah. you know, when the head of the Charles happens, I mean, this city, I needed a hotel room in my hotel two weeks ago. And I was told the closest hotel I could get was Waltham. <laughs> and so there's a lot slated in the, in the pipeline, but, um, yeah, it's like, it's almost like, just as Boston has a housing shortage, it had a it had a huge hotel shortage as well. Yeah, I mean it's like it's very very it's very difficult. I mean that the barriers to entry here are so. If I came up with a new high rise hotel idea now, you know you, you 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 might see the hotel in four years if you're lucky. So things don't happen quick. In New York City is much easier to get things built, especially big things, than here. You said it was 94% occupancy on average? 94.5. But you also mentioned Boston itself has, has 80%. I mean, that's still nothing to sneeze at. A lot of operators would love 80%. So moving into the smaller scale, the more boutique 
theme. Uh, what are your thoughts on Airbnbs? And we know there's obviously a lot of pushback from communities and uh, demands for regulation, and some regulations have come through here in other cities. Do you find them to be any competition, or do you find them to be necessary because of this? Well, ironically, other than our hotel, which we could have killed Airbnb anyway, because our price point is the same, but we have a social experience. So we were never worried about Airbnb. It actually helped the apartment business because it took a lot of units off the market. And it was estimated that there were 3,000 Airbnb units uh, in greater Boston. So I, you know, honestly, I question the, the legality of the government saying you can't do this. However, if a municipality deems it as a zoning violation, I guess you can say you can't do it. People objected to it because they didn't want their building filled with transient people. The housing advocates felt it took units off the market. It's a very gray area. And I think that um, the powers have spoken. I think the pressure and against Airbnb is intense. And, you know, I suspect some hotel lobbyists behind closed doors had something to say about it too. So I, the concept uh, was an interesting one and I don't mean was as in it's going to go out of business, but they're definitely facing headwinds and they, in the cities that it will be allowed, they're going to have to probably pay the same taxes to the extent that people can find them that everyone else does. There was an unfair advantage because hotel taxes for me are high and uh, the playing field will get, get leveled. But I would be very nervous if I was a major stakeholder in Airbnb because uh, uh, it is not popular in most uh, urban areas. Can we ask you one last question before we go into a uh, game of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated? Can you tell us a little bit about how your organization is structured? Do you have an acquisitions team, a marketing group? How many different departments within, within the company and how do you sort of uh, manage the business? So we're very unusual. Number one, we have an incredibly small number of people. And I'm working on a, a, a deal a very large deal with a company that I have a great deal of respect for, uh, but they've got 290 people. We do a lot with a little, and we don't have any desire to try to win awards by how many people we have. Therefore, the people we have are self-starters. Uh, I give a tremendous amount of autonomy. And that goes everywhere from maintenance people to, you know, the, to, to the top. And we're, and we all socialize together. Our, our, I've had, ma- I've had maintenance people here for 20 years and we have, we encourage people to come up with ideas on how to improve things. And we, we actually have a financial reward that we give when people come, come up with a good idea. So there's incredible equality here. People know their job and it is the Bill Belichick theme. It's just do your job. We don't sit and hover over people. We are not layered. If a, you know, if a plumber comes to the office and needs to talk to me about something, he walks in my office and say, Bruce, you know, so we're really, really unusual. And to describe the management style, it would be very hard to describe because you're not going to find it in a textbook anywhere. Cool. Yeah, that's great. Um, I appreciate that style myself. I think that's, uh, 
That's awesome. Why don't we kick it off here? Are we familiar with the ground rules? I think so. All right. <laughs> don't be nervous. <laughs> I'll give you an easy one for the first one. Uh, how about green roofs? I can't answer it because from a marketing standpoint, very effective. From a production standpoint, not. So I'm right in the middle. Okay. All right. Appropriately right now. How about um, opportunity zones? Sorry, I had to turn it up a notch there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 uh. I would say overrated. Any reason for that? Is it pushing There are people? a lot of tax benefits in the real estate business. So I'm not sure that's the best one. Interesting. Got it. How about lease option to buy? Lease options to buy. It's not wildly common these days, but it's probably overrated. You're, you're probably going to pay a higher price at the option than you would otherwise. Long-term leases. Mark, do you mean residential, commercial, both? Up as a part, like for residential. Residential. I like the idea, so I think it's underrated. Okay, yeah, we do too. How about um, property management software? It's critical, and I think it's becoming more critical because now they're using essentially the airline models that are where, where prices go up and down and, and with demand, and you couldn't have done that you know, f- five or six years ago. Are you guys using dynamic pricing in your portfolio? Uh, we're starting to. That must be a change. It, it is. I, I happen not to like it in a way. Yeah. I think when, when one person is in a one bedroom and is paying you know, 2400 and the guy next door is paying 2900 it's got to bug the guy mm-hmm. who's paying the 2900 when I'm on JetBlue and the guy next to me is paying half what I'm paying. Okay. It, it's, but, you know, it's, it, it, it is effective. Yeah, it's the way hmm. in the world. How about single family rentals? I think it's overrated. I, uh, I, you know, in Las Vegas, there were people that made a fortune on buying single families for next to nothing. But uh, the management of a single family house is uh, intense. And uh, I think the, the cost of, of operations and, uh, and what, what do you do with the house when the person beats it up a little bit? Now you've got to do all this work to, to bring it back to market. I think it's overrated. Yeah. And actually getting to occupancy, you're either at 100% or 0%. It is all it is or nothing. Not very, very black and white there. How about uh, classic cars? <laughs> <laughs> um, I happen to be addicted to, uh, <laughs> to American muscle cars. I would say they are probably, generally speaking, a lousy investment over time simply because millennials don't care about cars. Ultimately, they are the people that are going to be buying the cars that I own. You go to these large auctions and you see the most homogeneous group of buyers. They're all roughly the same age. They all have, you know, not so much hair on their head. They got a big paunch there. And it, they are the buyers. You don't see 30-somethings uh, in, the, in the crowd. And so eventually, I think this is a a diminishing market, but you buy the right car and boy, is it fun. And I've got some <laughs> that are just, are just really uh, a riot. We'll have to go out for a ride with you sometime. Yeah. yeah. That'd be fun. Don't let me drive though. I'm a below, <laughs> below average driver. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last one on my end, um, floor to ceiling windows. <sighs> wow. And you're, you, you must have a bug in my office because they're great for leasing. They add a lot of cost, even though a architect may say, well, what you save on sidewall, you know, is made up by the glass. It's not, it's not correct. But the problem is the tenant, when they go into their bedroom, 
they realize that they are in a fishbowl. <laughs> and so invariably, that floor-to-ceiling window will be covered with shades 24-7. So in, in practicality, absolutely overrated. That's an interesting, interesting one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. How about brick facades? Brick is, labor on brick is very expensive. So you will not see brick in our buildings. And we'll wrap it up here, in-house property management. It's a tough call. Uh, Buildings are becoming more and more demanding of uh, services. If you have a 100-unit building or more, these buildings are now the community for millennials whose lives often don't extend beyond a laptop and a, a, a cell phone. So they get their social life from the community space in a building. So it is incumbent upon the developer to have yoga classes and, and whiskey tastings and wine tastings and, and, and book clubs. And so in many ways, you are programming their social lives. So that is something that's very hard to execute internally. You don't just open up a building uh, hand them the keys and say, I'll see you in a year. It is a very different experience. And the property management component of a building is far more complex, involved, and important than it used to be. That's a great answer. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking all the time today. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, learned a ton. If people want to learn more about your company and reach out and get in touch, what's the best way for them to do it? Go to our website, although uh, we are gonna, we're in the process of upgrading it. It's a little primitive these days. That'll give you an idea. But our website does not cover the scope of, of, of really what we do. Well, and your apartments are all listed with various brokers throughout the city? Yes. Uh, fortunately, our vacancy rate at this moment is uh, zero. Wow. So um, our need for brokers at this particular moment is not very high. However, brokers are you know, critically important. Hey, thank you very much. And thanks for everyone who's listening in and following along, rating and et cetera, et cetera. If anyone has any comments or feedback, email us at therealestateaddicts at gmail.com. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. See you. Thanks, thank Bruce. you.